This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Stephen C. Harper is a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. In 2012, Stephen was appointed as the managing historian and a general editor of Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. He served in the Canada-Winnipeg mission and married Jennifer Sebring. They graduated from BYU and later Stephen earned an MA in American history from Utah State University and a PhD in early American history from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He began teaching courses in religion and history at BYU Hawaii in 2000 and joined the religious education faculty at BYU in 2002. That year, he also became a volume editor of the Joseph Smith Papers and the document editor for BYU Studies. He taught at the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies in 2011 to 2012. Stephen has authored dozens of articles and several books. His most recent book is titled First Vision, Memory and Mormon Origins. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Tara. I'm honestly so excited to learn from you today. I was doing a little homework, actually, to prepare for this interview, and I was Googling things, and you know, lo and behold, the things that would come up were things written by you, <laughs> which I thought was really funny um, and appropriate. Um, but this episode will be a part of our Anchors of Faith series, and we will be focusing on the life of Joseph Smith and evidence of his prophetic call. And I think there are probably few people who have studied the life of the prophet as extensively as you have, Stephen. So who better to discuss this with? Well, I hope so. I hope so. Well, I have to say that Steve is being extremely modest <laughs> in saying that. I know that um, we'll all be taught a lot today. Based on your study of church history and Joseph's life, how would you describe Joseph Smith? Complex. Um, Joseph Smith is deeper than I am. Uh, I cannot plumb his depths. I've tried and tried. The more I know about him, the deeper he is. Um, it's true that no matter who we are, me or anybody else, we we're going to come at him with limitations, right? With biases and other kinds of limitations. And of course he comes to us with limitations too. His records are incomplete. Um, he said several times that he just wouldn't be able to adequately represent himself to us. I didn't have much education, he says, at the beginning of both of his autobiographies. And in his last general conference talk he ever gave in April of 1844, he said, you never really knew who I am. You never knew my heart. And I can't adequately explain. And so uh, he's mysterious in one sense. There's probably not many more people who are better documented than he is, right? We have... Mm -hmm. Lots of evidence of his conversion account. He left us tons and tons of, of writing, 1,588 pages of journals, but really only about 30 of those in his handwriting. So in one sense, he's well-documented. And then in another, it's not easy necessarily to crack into the inner depths of his heart and mind. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I think as we grow up in the church, you know, we, we get the, the very clean cut version of church history and the, the cute little stories of Joseph Smith. Um, but yes, I think as you, you get older and you, if you really start digging into his life, you recognize that there's a lot of complexity. And I like that you put that a lot of depth to Joseph Smith. And I, I can't imagine being, Joseph and the word ineffable um, is often used by Jared Halverson, where he, 
Joseph is always having these experiences that are so hard to describe. And he, he's always trying to put to paper, but with great difficulty, what he's experienced. And so I think having had all the, the unique experiences that he had, yes, certainly a lot of depth, but it would be hard to live in a world uh, like this one, having seen all that he had and yeah. experienced all that he had. So that's a good way of, of describing him. Now, as a missionary, it was interesting to see the direct fulfillment of the prophecy that Moroni gave, you know, in Joseph Smith history, which was that Joseph's name would be had for good and evil among all nations. And I recall many conversations with people where Joseph Smith was brought up and they would just rail on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on the flip side, those who accepted our message expressed deep gratitude for Joseph and his great personal sacrifice to restore the gospel to the earth. And it was always for me a privilege to be able to defend brother Joseph. So I'm, I'm very aware that he wasn't perfect, but it's my testimony that he was the instrument God chose to restore his gospel. And I do believe there is ample evidence to support that position. So today I would like to discuss four areas, which I believe provide that evidence. Um, And so those four points will be Joseph's vision of God, the father and Jesus Christ. The second Joseph's role in bringing forth the book of Mormon and additional scripture. Third, what those who knew Joseph's best said about him and fourth, and probably uh, was kind of an afterthought actually, but as I started getting into this more, the prophet's role in reinstituting temple worship. So we've got some good meaty conversation coming up here, I think. <laughs> Indeed. But, and actually Stephen, he, he has written a book on the first vision. And so again, I feel like you're probably one of the best people to talk about this. What can you tell us about Joseph's vision and why you feel that that is an evidence of his prophetic call? Well, it's often the case that a, um, a prophet will have a, a theophany, right? A, a vision of God, a confrontation with, with God when being called. Moses does, Isaiah does, Paul does. Um, so Joseph has that. It's a well-documented theophany, perhaps the best documented of, of any in history that we've got. So Joseph um, is... Uh, unique among the prophets in some ways, and then he fits this characteristic mold in other ways. I think the uniqueness is because he's from the 19th century United States, and then in other ways, he fits among the prophets throughout time uh, based on this pattern of being called of God in this dramatic, divine, visionary way. Hmm. Well, and I know that for a lot of people who first become aware of, like we obviously have our canonized version of Mm -hmm. his first vision in the Pearl of Great Price, but a lot of people don't grow up knowing that there are four firsthand accounts of the vision. And then apparently five secondhand accounts that were given through Uh, contemporaries of Joseph Smith. So what can you tell us about that? And how perhaps can people uh, reconcile maybe some of the the challenges they face as they're reading these different accounts and seeing what they may feel like are discrepancies or differences? That's a great question. Maybe the first thing to notice for for anyone listening is that, that you just stated the facts of the matter. There are four known accounts of Joseph's vision in the historical record that are primary. They came from him or a scribe that he caused to write it. And there are five secondary ones. Somebody he told the vision to during his lifetime who wrote it down. That's all there is to the matter. That's all the facts. And the facts don't speak for themselves. So what we just said there is absolutely neutral. It doesn't mean anything unless we give it the meaning so reader or folks who are listening may have felt something or thought something 
as you said those facts or as I did. Mm-hmm. And that is an interesting place to begin the analysis. What does it mean to you when you hear there are four accounts, the first vision or, or five secondary accounts? What feeling does that create? What emotion is associated with it? For some people, it's fear. It, what? There, there are more accounts? There, there's meaning that they read into it that means that there's some, something wrong with that fact, right? Mm-hmm. Now, on the, on the face of it, it's just a fact. It doesn't have any meaning. It's not right or wrong or good or bad. Or it's just the fact that there are these documents that exist. But it is the fact that there's a, so much at stake for many of us in those documents. Are they true or false? Are they right or wrong? And everything, for some, for some of us, everything that's meaningful to us depends on the answers to those questions. So anything that could affect the outcome of those answers is you know, full of emotion or drama, or tension, or potential conflict. And what I invite people to do is to go slower and more deliberately through their thought processes than they might have before, and try to sort out the difference between the facts of the matter and what those facts mean. And I try to encourage people to learn all the evidence for themselves. So they're not dependent on anyone else. They're going to have to be dependent on Joseph. He's the recorder, right? He's the, he's the source of our knowledge of his vision. So everything we're going to know about the vision is going to be mediated through Joseph. But other than him, I hope people won't listen to so-called experts, me or others, or if, if they do at least don't default to their judgments. I hope people will come to know for themselves Hmm. what the historical records say. And I hope they'll do it with diligent brain work and also with diligent spiritual work, because I don't trust one or the other of those as an infallible way to truth. Uh, And neither do the scriptures, right? The scriptures Mm -hmm. don't prescribe just pray about it. I know we say that, but that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures prescribe brain work, remember, read, ponder, and they prescribe spiritual work, faith in Christ, sincere heart, real intent. And it's that recipe, it's that coming together of our God-given faculties that has the promise that that's how you can come to know things that are ultimate and that are beyond the historical method, right? A historian cannot prove or disprove the first vision or the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith's divine calling, or the temple ordinances. They can't. And people are going to have to learn the best they can from what historians can do, but ultimately they're going to need a, a better way of knowing than what analysis of, of facts can provide. Is that helpful in any way? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people in this day and age, we, we have so much information coming at us. And unfortunately, we have not learned how to be good processors <laughs> of that exactly information. Right. And so I, I like that directive to slow down, take time to study it out for yourself, because you're right. No, no uh, expert or no matter how much you have actually studied these records or prayed about it, no one can tell you if these things are true or not, of the right. veracity of them or not. It, it's a, an individual matter. And we do yeah. have to put our brain and our heart into that process in order to come to the bottom of the truth. So I do like that a lot. And that does make a lot of sense. Maybe perhaps uh, a step further now, again, I did my homework, Stephen, <laughs> and I listened to a lecture that you gave on this. And, and one of the points that people have made in regards to these four different accounts is that, you know, Joseph was speaking to different audiences and at different times in his life, and mm-hmm. which would change 
what information he might share or even how he was able to process the event for himself because of the circumstances in his own life. But I like what you said in this lecture, talking about the science of memory and how uh, that impacts how we remember events in our life. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. My main point there is that the, the variation in Joseph's vision accounts is best explained by the fact that they're different memories. One, the, the earliest one comes from 1832, the next one from 1835, the next one from 1838, and the next one from 1842. So what we get is Joseph not just remembering the vision as he experienced it at the time, we get Joseph remembering the vision over time. And whenever that happens, the memory, the dynamics of memory are fluid. Our memories change. Uh, we, make, we actually make up our memories at the time that we recall them. People might object and say, no, memory is like a file in my file cabinet or on my computer or a DVD. And that is simply not the case. No uh, scholar, no scientist or psychologist of memory thinks of memory that way. And there's lots of good evidence showing that when we make a memory, we take pieces of the past that we somehow have in us, and then we, we put them together in a new way that's based very much on our present priorities and concerns and context. And every time Joseph tells his vision, that's what he's doing. And everybody listening to this does exactly the same thing. They may not know it or think about it, or they may not believe it, but if they analyzed it carefully, we would all notice that this is what we do. I, I like to tell people how I met my wife. I've told that story lots and lots of times. And every time I do, I make a version of it for the present situation, and I make it out of, uh, of the materials I've stored long since, but every time I do it, it's different. Mm -hmm. I, I watched my son one morning. He was playing with a box of Legos and got a new kit, and this cover of this box of Legos had a rocket ship on it that you could build out of the contents of the box. He got the Legos out and he built it exactly the way that the box showed. Then he took it apart and he built it again. And this time he did variations. He did that again and again. And I watched and I thought that is a fantastic analogy for how Joseph Smith remembered his first vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, used, he used many of the same pieces, but he didn't always use all the same pieces. Sometimes he chose these, this piece and not that piece. And he put them together at different times. And it was close enough to the same memory that you could, you could see it's the same, same thing, right? It's the same rocket ship, or at least it's a variation on it. It's not a completely different thing. But you could also tell that the rocket ship was different from time to time. And when you read Joseph's vision memories, you can tell that the memory is different. And so here's the point. All that stuff I've said is a fact. Those are facts. Now, people who are listening are going to have some kind of re reaction to those facts, a response. Those are subjective responses. Some people are going to say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I believe in uh, the vision, and it makes perfect sense why there'd be variations, because it has to do with the way you remember. And that's valid. That's not a problem. I don't need to question Joseph's um, veracity, because that's how memory works. And other people are going to say, Joseph Smith can't be trusted. His memories are, are too fluid. They can't be reliable because they change so much. And other people are going to find him to be conniving, right? conspiring in the way he constructs memories over time. Well, any of those uh, responses are simply a choice to interpret the facts one way or another. The facts are the same in every single case. So why we choose one response or other to Joseph Smith's first vision has a whole lot more to do with our subjectivities than it does with any sort of objective facts of the matter. And I think that's important for people to understand. 
we, it's not that smart people believe the vision and dumb people don't or vice versa. Right. It's mm-hmm. not that, um, it's not that intelligent people don't believe because they know more and, uh, and so forth. That's not the case. Uh, it's the case that for some reason, some people choose to believe and some people don't. And that has a lot, uh, has nothing really to do with the facts of the matter. So I want people to be metacognitive. I want them to be aware of what they're thinking and how they're thinking when it comes to any matter related to Joseph Smith and his claims. It's at least as important to know why we think what we think about him as it is to know what he thought and what he recorded about his his thoughts and memories. Well, we could probably go on and on about just that one point <laughs> for the yeah. rest of this episode, but for the sake of time and, and hitting these other points, we'll move on. But I will just say to maybe wrap up that one point, going back to my experience as a missionary, I loved sharing the first vision with people. I remember I the light that would come on in their eyes when we would share that moment when Joseph saw that pillar of light over his head so there there was a and not to be uh, you know too mormon-esque but a special spirit that would enter <laughs> the room yeah. in the conversation when we would when we would share that vision and so it's my testimony that that is true and as you had suggested if people are grappling with that to do some brain work and some heart work and let the two work together to yeah. find the truth of, of that for themselves that's my experience as well. I know yours is valid because that's exactly what mine is like as well. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. This, this next point, and you know, what, one thing that I love about the Book of Mormon is kind of this reciprocity between the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. I believe that the Book of Mormon bears testimony of Joseph's prophetic call and that Joseph Smith's life the fact that he was uneducated, that he was so young and unexperienced, bears testimony of the veracity of the Book of Mormon. Um, and so Joseph's role in bringing forth the Book of Mormon and additional scripture like the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price, how do you see that as being evidence of his prophetic call? Well, to my mind, the existence of the Book of Mormon is the most powerful and profound evidence of Joseph Smith's call as a prophet that there is. It's not even close. And that's exactly the way the earliest missionaries presented it. Uh, I did my master's thesis on what the early missionaries taught and who they taught it to and what happened when the particular way they taught met the kind of people they were teaching. And the Book of Mormon was a key component of that. They would, they would, talk about they would start by saying the bible says there will be a scattering and a gathering of israel and there will be a broken covenant that will have to be renewed and they would then say the book of mormon which i'm holding in my hand here is the evidence that that covenant is renewed and joseph smith is the guy who brought it forth and so they would present the book of mormon as the evidence that God was doing the Latter-day work that the Bible prophesied and that Joseph Smith was his choice to lead that Latter-day work. And that is such a compelling argument. I mean, the people who heard that in the 1830s, many of them flocked to it. And of course, many rejected it. Alexander Campbell famously said, that's a bunch of crap. I mean, the Book of Mormon is so transparent. It's, you got Christians before there was Christ and and it's so full of um, 19th century concerns that it can't possibly be true. And he, you know, a whole bunch of other people rejected it. You know, Mark Twain quipped about it in clever ways. And the fact of the matter is nobody's ever done anything like it, right? Mm-hmm. Between the seventh day of April and the end of June in 1829, a kid from upstate New York who had less education than I did when I finished sixth grade produced the Book of Mormon. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. 
everybody who watched him do it said that there's there's all kinds of confirming proofs of the facts i just said we have we have the printer's manuscript of the book of mormon almost entirely intact we have about a third of the original manuscript both overwhelmingly in oliver cowdery's handwriting we have joseph's autobiographies and histories telling about this period and what he did we have his wife saying the same story we have Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer all confirming this story with a cloud of other witnesses as well. And it's, it's got to be explained, right? This book came off the press in the last week of March, 1830 in Palmyra, New York. Where in the world did it come from? And anybody who says, well, Joseph Smith hatched it out of his head, they got a lot of explaining to do, okay? They need to start by reading his 1832 autobiography, six pages long, two and a half years after the Book of Mormon comes off the press, a couple of sentences in the whole document, misplaced modifiers. It begins with a disclaimer saying, I barely had any education. And it, it, it's profound and deep and beautiful, but it also has a lot of literary roughness to it. And that's true of any writing Joseph Smith does. I'm not arguing that the Book of Mormon is the, the greatest literary masterpiece, right? The most elegant prose you've ever read, but it is demonstrably full of Old Testament covenant concepts, ancient poetic structures, right? It is not the composition of Joseph Smith. It is impossible that it is the composition of Joseph Smith, Jr., and, and anybody who's going to argue that he's the author of it has, has not grappled seriously with that body of evidence, right? You, you got to sweep a bunch of it under the rug or dismiss it, right? Do they mm -hmm. say, well, he, he just cracked open a King James Isaiah and copied it out. That's so inadequate to explain anything. Where in the world did Jacob 5 come from then? <laughs> and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? It's just a, an inadequate argument. And I think it doesn't take seriously the, the challenge of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the most powerful piece of evidence that Joseph Smith is what he said he was. Well, I think drawing from personal experience uh, is so helpful in this case, because like you, I think if, if you really take a good hard look at the Book of Mormon and you understand Joseph's background, and even, even if he had been a highly educated young man at the age of 23, in that uh, era of the world where there was no computers, <laughs> he didn't have access to a great library. He said he wasn't a great reader. His family members said he wasn't a great reader. Uh, anyhow, anyone that has tried to write anything of any length <laughs> should be able to know that that could not have, as you said, come out of Joseph's head. And you're the author of how many books? Oh, four or five. And they four all took five. a whole lot longer than a spring. Right. Right. And a lot and, more help. And just simply the, there's the process of writing something and then editing it. I wrote a young adult novel some years ago, mostly to check off something on my bucket list, but it took me a year just to write the first draft. And that was without any editing. And it certainly wasn't to the caliber or the length of the Book of Mormon. Anyway, so my point being that I think you're absolutely right, that if we take a good hard look, that the evidence really speaks to the fact that we know that Joseph Smith couldn't have produced it. And so the only other likely alternative would have been what Joseph said. <laughs> That's where I come down, right? Uh, I, I know it's I know it's remarkable. I, I'll give you that. Angels standing midair, marvelous stones through which you can see things that nobody else can see, including reformed Egyptian turned into English. I'll grant that that's pretty spectacular. But, well, where else did the book come from then? And I've, I've read the other alternatives. I know what the other explanations are. and None of them come anywhere close to satisfying me. Partly, I'd say mainly because the book says at the beginning according to joseph you'll get nearer to god by abiding by the precepts of this book than in any other way that's true for me i've drawn nearer to god i'm i'm a, such a better person and a happier person and a better uh, human being to other 
of God's children because of the precepts of the Book of Mormon, by abiding by them, by acting in the way that book prescribes, believing what it invites me to believe, I am nearer to God. So for me, it's not just an intellectual test, even though the intellectual tests are pretty compelling. For me, it, it is a spiritual transformation that comes from abiding by the gospel of Christ revealed in the Book of Mormon. And I just can't dismiss that. I, I, don't, I don't see how it can be explained away easily, and certainly not by any of the alternative explanations that I've ever seen. Here, here. Well, and I think that that really is the most important thing. Again, we can look at the intellectual arguments, but I know I keep drawing on my mission experience here, but it was always interesting to see people who would really take our challenge to read the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. and allow it to absorb and, and the changes that would take place in their lives. And I can testify for myself as I have made a study of that book a part of my life that it has changed me. It has brought me closer to Christ. Me so uh, I think, again, going back to what you had said at the beginning, we, we, we always have to allow the, the two parts, the, the mind and the heart, to be working together in these things. And I think the Lord expects us to do that. No but doubt. in the end, I think it really will always boil down to what am I going to choose to believe and, and what evidence will I choose to accept? Yeah. Well, and maybe to, to finish off this point, you know, we're reading the Doctrine and Covenants, and I love the story of William McClellan, who had apparently not liked what Joseph was producing and uh, tried to produce a, a section himself. You could tell the story better than, than I. What it's happened there? <laughs> well, the coolest part of that story is that uh, a week earlier, in the latter days of October 1831, William McClellan asked Joseph, he asked God five secret questions. Without Joseph knowing what they were, he asked Joseph to seek a revelation on his behalf. He then wrote, he, he scribed the revelation as Joseph Smith dictated it. And William McClellan ever after testified, including after he grew to hate Joseph and resent him and fight against him. Even in the midst of that, he testified, God answered every question I lodged in his ears to my full and entire satisfaction. I consider it to me to this day evidence I cannot refute. He said that when he was in the middle of a campaign to gather every bit of evidence he could to overturn Joseph Smith as a, as a revelator. He, ne- he never could. He never could persuade himself that Joseph wasn't a, a true revelator. So a few days after that, though, when he's fully believing and committed, William McClellan is one of several leaders of the church that Joseph gathers at the Johnson home in Hiram, Ohio. And he says, we've got to publish these revelation manuscripts, right? The missionaries need them. The members of the church need them. We got to publish them. Well, that seems like a no brainer. Sure. Of course you do that, but it only seems that way. If you don't remember that these people live in a Protestant dominated country where the Bible is the only word of God and all the word of God you'll ever need. And we've already got ourselves in a whole lot of trouble by publishing another book of scripture. And now we're planning to do it again. And the complicated, uh, component or another component that complicates matters even further is this book doesn't even claim to be an ancient scripture this claims to be modern revelations in the voice of jesus christ revealed through joseph smith and uh they they call the neighbors enemies they'd say the whole world needs to repent and they prophesy calamities that are coming and i mean it's just going to get us in a lot of trouble if we publish this book and so everybody in the room is swallowing hard and thinking okay we know these are revelations but are we really going to do this and what's it going to cost us in terms of not only lives and fortunes but sacred honor if we do and um, they decide to ask for a experience similar to what the three witnesses received, right? 
Joseph had told them a week earlier in a different conference meeting, if you can have enough faith, you can just as easily rend the veil today or next week as any other time. So now it's next week and they're going to rend the veil. They want to see an angel and hear the voice of God say the doctrine and covenants or, or the book of commandments is true. They try that and nothing happens. So Joseph asks the Lord why. And the Lord gives section 67 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says, you guys have a bunch of fear in your hearts and you're jealous and you think you can do better than Joseph Smith. The Lord says, I acknowledge he's weak, right? The writing is not great. Uh, even in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, which came that same week, the Lord says, I gave the revelations to my servants in their weakness so that they could come to understanding. It's in their language, right? It's in it's their language so they can understand. It's not in God's own language. So the Lord is unconcerned with the weaknesses of the revelations, but the brethren are. They're, they're worried about these inelegantly phrased, sometimes grammatically rough, uh, creative spellings that are going to go out as the voice of Jesus Christ and scripture to the whole world and invite all kinds of scrutiny and definitely criticism. And it's in that environment that in this revelation, the Lord gives them, he says, I'll give you another kind of evidence. You're not going to see an angel today. You can, if you behave yourselves well and continue to grow, but you're not going to today. But I'll tell you what, you pick the smartest guy in the room and pick the simplest text in the book of commandments and revelations that's sitting on the table have this guy make a pseudo revelation, something that's on par with the simplest one. And if he can do it, I'll let you off the hook. You don't have to testify that you know they're true. If he can't do it and you all know it, then I'm going to hold you accountable if you don't tell the world, you know, they're true. And William McClellan, either by his own volunteer or by the other guys thinking that he was the best suited for the job ends up with it. Uh, the job of creating a pseudo revelation and doesn't succeed. And he and all the others sign their name to a statement after that, that says, we know, we know that these revelations are true and we'll bear a witness of it to the whole world. It's really one of many stories that are powerful evidences that the people who knew Joseph best and associated most closely with him believed his revelations in a way that is very, very compelling. Hmm. Well, I love that story. And that, that's actually a great segue into this next question, which you've kind of been alluding to already. But in your study of church history and of Joseph Smith's life, I'm sure you've read a lot of what others said about Joseph Smith or what they saw in his life. So what, what did those people say about Joseph Smith and, and what were their feelings about him? Those that knew Joseph best. So people have in Joseph's time and place and long before and ever since have heavy, heavy questions. What is God like? Is there a God? What's he like? Does he hate me? Is he going to send me to hell? Is it possible that he loves me? Would he forgive me? If so, on what conditions? Right? What, what's his nature? What's he all about? Is there some kind of plan for my existence? Or is this all meaningless and futile? These are questions that are just about on everyone's mind in some way or other. And the appeal of Joseph Smith is he gives the best answers to those questions that anybody has ever given. And he doesn't do it out of his own head. He's not a philosopher. He's not Emerson, right? Who can, who can tell these wonderful words that, that seem profoundly meaningful. That's not Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Joseph reveals Christ. He gives the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is... The, the source of the answers to all the terrible questions, okay? Death is a terrible problem that it disrupts relationships. It cuts us off from the people that we love. 
is there any solution uh, to death and what's the nature of that solution if there is, right? Uh, somebody might listening might say, uh-uh, that answer, that question's answered in the New Testament and, and uh, Christ is resurrected from the dead and promises to resurrect others. That's all true. But what I'm saying is Joseph gives the restored gospel where the answer from Christ is not just, I'm going to resurrect you from the dead, but I'm going to seal you to the people that you love most so that you're not resurrected into a one of many, you know, thousands in heaven. You get resurrected into the relationships that you cherish most. Joseph's answers are better. The gospel of Jesus Christ that is revealed through Joseph Smith is better. It solves the soteriological problem of Christianity. The, the problem, in other words, of what about those who never heard the gospel of Christ? It solves the problem of suffering, the problem of, of evil, right? Joseph has revealed to him by the Savior the answers to the awful problems and the terrible questions that our existence poses. And that is why he appealed to, to people then and, and now. Um, it wasn't because he was the most eloquent or the smartest, and he didn't even think of himself as unusually righteous. He thought he was a struggling, striving soul who had these questions himself and who sought answers for them from God with great faith. And God picked him to reveal the answers to everybody and to commission others to take these answers to the whole world. And that's the reason I and other people follow Joseph Smith. It's not anything other than the fact that he is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in restoring the gospel, the best version of the gospel the world has ever had. And that's what the appeal is. That's what people, that's what drew Brigham Young and Wilfred Woodruff and Emma Smith, right? Mm -hmm. and, and everyone else who followed him. That's what drew them to him. I love that. And I think so often in Joseph's day, they really believed in this hellfire damnation type of God who was looking to for every opportunity to punish us, essentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so Joseph's uh, teachings, while they're not perhaps seen as so revolutionary now, at that point, they were very novel, very revolutionary. And, and of course, even now, the teachings that Joseph Smith gave us they do answer all those hard questions, those, those questions that when people are dealing with death and with struggle, there are answers in the right. things that Joseph taught. And so I, I love that answer, actually, because obviously Joseph was a man. He, he had struggles and challenges and weaknesses, just like any one of us. And he was very willing to admit that, <laughs> which I appreciate. Yeah, even um, in scripture. Yeah, he canonized his, his mistakes in, in scripture. I think that's also a good evidence of his prophetic call, that, that he wasn't on his, on his own agenda. Um, but certainly his teachings, which were not his own, but Jesus Christ, they, they did revolutionize the world and, and the face of religion as we know it. And I suppose probably one of the most revolutionary teachings was his, his reinstating temple worship. And as I had said at the beginning, this piece kind of came as an afterthought. But today, as I've been preparing for this interview, I've been thinking, no, this is actually like probably one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that God had called him and that Joseph was restoring, as you said, covenant Israel. And so what are your thoughts on that? As we look at Joseph's role in reinstating temple worship, how does that show us that he was truly being called as a prophet and that God had a great work for him to do? Oh, what a great question. I, I don't, I don't have a perfect answer to it, but the restoration of temple covenants is one of the things in the restored gospel that I find most compelling, most beautiful, right? Those covenants I have made are such a powerful determinant of my attitudes and behaviors uh, including repentance, right? Uh, I, I'm oriented by those covenants that I've made that Joseph Smith restored. And they came out of the blue, right? They came out of nowhere. I mean, you might say, no, there's evidence for them in the Bible or here or there, but 
well, then why isn't anybody else doing this? Why is Joseph Smith the only one in his time and place who is finding these pieces uh, of, of the past and endowing things with meaning and purpose that nobody else is seeing? Uh, and he's certainly doing that. Um, he endows, uh, you know, the, a, a Protestant Bible with more meaning and purpose and profundity and, and plan from God's perspective than anyone else in his time and place. He takes pieces and, and parts of, of all kinds of theologies or um, uh, even fraternities like a Masonic free, Freemasonry and and he sees in that meaning and value, and uh, he breathes those things into it. And he's not doing this again out of some sort of unusually fertile uh, capacity of his own. He's not uh, in his own native intellect that, that capable. Uh, he always will testify, I know these things by revelation. I learned them from God. Um, and I find every reason to believe him in that. I don't find any reason to think that Joseph Smith, the farmer, was capable of this stuff. And neither did, neither did the people who knew him best, right? His own wife, his mother, his closest associates all say the same thing in one way or the other. This kid is not capable of these things on his own. And the fact that he does them is their evidence that he is indeed called of God. And so on the fourth day of May, 1842, with not much time left to live, and he knows it, Joseph Smith convenes a council meeting in the upper room of his store in Nauvoo, which he's had Lucius Scoville turn into a temple, right? We brought in plants and paintings and hung curtains and carpets, and we've turned this profane space into sacred space, and we start temple worship, um, temple endowment for the first time in the last dispensation. And Joseph gives all the plans and principles, uh, priesthoods and promises that anybody needs, according to his journal entry for the day, to regain the presence of God and abide there. And he's got nine men there in this council that he endows. And they all are in awe and they're appreciative of what he's given to them. It's so far beyond what they had found in any other version of Christianity or in the Freemasonry to which they all belonged. And they all understood that in the versions of Christianity that they had come from or in the uh, ceremonies of the Freemasons that they had all participated in, there were pieces and parts of of this plan, but it was Joseph Smith who brought it all together and gave them a more powerful, meaningful version of all this stuff than they'd ever found anywhere else. And they were all in awe of this, and they all believed uh, that he had been called of God and endowed with God's power to do this work. And I, I find the same thing myself. I, I love the temple. I love the promises that I've made there and that have been made to me there. They are the most powerful determinant of my behavior and the way I choose to think and live uh, of anything else in my life. Well, as I was preparing for this interview, as I said, I had, I was really trying to do my homework. And so I, I Googled Joseph Smith and temples. And the first thing that popped up was a, uh, an article that you had written, <laughs> actually, I just had a, a good laugh about that today, but you had quoted a fellow named George Edward Anderson, who said, in one sense, Moroni, speaking of when Moroni first appeared to Joseph in when he was 17 years of age, Moroni enlisted the 17-year-old seer to save the world when he told young Joseph that he had a role in fulfilling ancient prophecy adding that if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. You expanded on that in this article, but uh, I find that so fascinating that while Joseph at the time didn't have 
any inkling, I'm sure, of really what Moroni was talking about. But in essence, he was introducing temple work to him for the first time. And as this fellow, George Anderson, said, he was basically saying, we need to save the whole human race. What are your thoughts on that? And would you expand on that thought for me? Yeah, essentially, that Moroni paraphrase of Malachi, which Joseph hears for the first time on the 22nd of September, 1823, at 17 years old. That's when Moroni visits him and says that same thing three times that night, again the next day. That is Joseph's introduction to what you and I now call temple work, right? And mm -hmm. essentially what Moroni tells him is there's a terrible problem. The human family is fractured, right? God's family is fractured because of, of the fall, because of fallenness, we run the risk of, of not regaining our relationships, right? They're not belonging to God and to each other in the way we're destined to, the way we're supposed to, the way we're meant to. And so, Joseph, unless something dramatic happens, unless the hearts of the ancestors, the patriarchs to whom promises were made by God, covenant promises, unless they get turned to us and us to them before the end of the world, which is coming soon, then the reason for creating this planet will go for naught. It'll be utterly wasted. So that's Moroni's way of saying, son, I'm here to call you to save the world. Now let's get to work, right? Hmm. And you're right. There's no chance that 17-year-old Joseph is completely internalizing this. And I don't, I don't think God's expectation is that he will. I think what he's doing is sending him a mentor who's going to work closely with him to get him launched on this prophetic career and mission over the term of which Joseph is going to come to understanding. That's the line out of DNC one. Mm -hmm. And this is that line on line precept on precept principle that is so evident in Joseph Smith's learning. Uh, the Lord is going to continue to lay one more thing on him and then one more thing and it's going to add up and make more and more sense until joseph is capable of understanding it and then giving it to others and he barely gets that work done right he barely gets the apostles or at least nine of the 12 apostles and their wives endowed and sealed in the early months of 1844 before they kill him that june and he knows that that's his work. He understands uh, at some point on pretty early with Moroni's tutelage that that's his life's work. And he learns more and more about it and then executes it, accomplishes it. And on March 26, 1844, he tells the apostles, ah, I finally finished. I'm done. It's now your problem <laughs> to get this all uh, you know, into the hearts and minds of the Latter-day Saints. I'm dropping this on your shoulders the Lord is going to let me rest a while. I feel as light as a cork, he says. So he gets, <laughs> he gets the temple work restored. He gets the keys of the holy priesthood that govern and authorize temple work from ministering angels along the way. He gets the ordinances and covenants restored to him, at least in some form. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord gives him the job of figuring out how to, what he calls, what Joseph will tell Brigham Young, you got to organize and systematize all this. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord gave that job first to Joseph and then Joseph handed it to Brigham <laughs> and said, I did the best I could. It's kind of a jumbled mess now. You take it from here and organize and systematize it. But at least Joseph got the powerful endowment of priesthood power for women and men restored. And he got uh, women and men endowed with that power and sealed together by the power of the Holy Priesthood. And he got enough of them who had that uh, ready to then give it to others before they could kill him. That was his life's work. I've had a friend say once that Joseph would have either been crazy or incredibly inspired to reinstitute temple worship because, <laughs> you know, you consider what it took to build a temple, the impoverished saints. I mean, they could barely 
get a roof over their own heads. And the prophet was telling them, we've got to start on the temple here, folks. If we look at all of these pieces of evidence, yeah, even though this was an afterthought, I think that that was the spirit telling me, no, this is, this is the crowning jewel. This is really what Joseph was working at. And as you put it, he, he, he got kind of this jumbled mess in place, but he got it in place and then they killed him. Um, So I'm, I'm so grateful for the temple. And like you, I, um, I know that I often go to the temple and I'm, I'm trying to grasp really all the depth that is there, but I feel the power that is in the temple. I've often said to my husband, as we've left, I don't know why I always start thinking this way when, when I leave the temple, but I, I start considering the magnitude of what we're trying to do in the temple as members of the church. And that through temple work, we are attempting to save the entire human race and link generations back to Adam and Eve to save the whole human family. Again, I always just think we're either crazy or we're fulfilling a divine mandate that was introduced to the prophet Joseph. There's really no in between. I think. (laughs) I think you're right. It's audacious beyond belief. (laughs) It's uh, it's, it's, it's what God wants. If, if our heavenly parents have this great family for whom they long, right? The, the, the God of Joseph Smith is not the impassable, passionless God of the creeds of Christianity, right? The God of the sacred grove and the doctrine and covenants is a God who loves his children. And it's actually parents. It's not just a father. It's a father and a mother who love their family and want relationships. That's a passable God is in the theological language. And that heavenly family value relationships with us more than anything else. And they want them to endure forever. They don't want them to be coerced. They don't want to force us into relationship with them or each other. They want us to love each other because that's what we choose, right? The weeping God of Enoch in the book of Moses weeps because his children hate each other and are mean to each other. So this is the great, great good news of the restoration that we have a loving God who is passable. He has a desire to be in a relationship with us, to be changed by our desires and and to be moved by our prayers uh, and to want to come to us when we come to him. And that God wants more than anything else for his family to be welded together forever, to be eternally united, for, for couples and families to be sealed together and to love each other not just in a universal way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, when other folks respond to this argument and say that Latter-day Saint concept of eternal families isn't biblical uh, and, you know, we will all be in heaven together. We'll all love each other the same and equally there. I think, man, that just does nothing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. Right? I'm an introvert. I don't want to be everybody's best friend. <laughs> I want to be married to Jenny Sebring forever. And have our kids and our family. And that way of relating to God and family is, to me, the ultimate of the restoration. And that's what is so meaningful to me about what Joseph Smith revealed. There's no other plan of salvation out there that offers that to me. There's no other version of the gospel of Jesus Christ that focuses so much uh, on my relationship to my heavenly parents and therefore to my parents here on earth and myself as a parent and as a spouse relationships and the way they can be sealed together forever. In other words, is why I'm a Latter-day Saint. Otherwise I'd be a perfectly content Quaker or whatever, (laughs) other, other wonderful options, but just not, just not ones that offer me the fullness of the, the blessings that are, that are available in the restored gospel. Well, I, I love it. I think maybe a good, good way to tie this up before I ask you this last question is that I think, again, you're right. Joseph Smith was a great man, but what made him great is that he, 
he introduced us to the true God and his plan of happiness, which is so inclusive. It's the most inclusive, merciful plan that you'll, you'll come across. And, and I think sometimes we get accused of being exclusive as members of the church. And yet, if you really look at our doctrine, at what Joseph Smith introduced to the world, reintroduced, I should say, it is a plan that can bring in the entire human family because God truly does love all of his children and has provided an equal opportunity for each of them to receive exaltation if they will so choose, which is remarkable. That's really well said. uh, It's the only gospel that has um, that wonderful invitation for everyone to come and enjoy all of God's fullness that doesn't invalidate their agency, right? Mm -hmm, right. There are other there are other soteriologies or theologies of salvation, universalism, for example, that says, yeah, God will save everyone. Well, what if they don't want to be saved? What if they don't opt for it? So the restored gospel has provision for everyone who wants every blessing to get it or whatever other blessing they want based on their choices to, to love God. And to be part of his family, you don't have to, if you don't want to. And I appreciate that about the plan, even though it hurts, Mm -hmm. it hurts when, when God is not loved by his own children and including myself from time to time. So I love that about the, the gospel revealed through Joseph Smith. Well, before I let you go, Stephen, I, uh, I'd like to ask this last question. Because the, the intent here is always to help encourage people to, to stay in the old ship Zion, <laughs> to stay in the boat. Um, cool. Why yeah. are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? Well, it's not because of the music. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, were visiting my daughter and son-in-law, my family was over the a recent holiday break and uh, I had a chance on Sunday to go to sacrament meeting, but then uh, spent a couple of hours at an evangelical church. And I really enjoyed the electric guitars and the drum set, <laughs> right? I could dig that so much. <laughs> I would, I would, yes. <laughs> I would be the first to sustain that um, if we were ever led that direction. So what I'm saying a little sillily is there are lots of things that I don't necessarily love about church culture and um, tradition, right? I don't love the suit and tie sort of thing. Uh, And uh, like I said, the music, and I don't mean to be lighthearted, but the answer to your question is not in any of those external things. It's not in any of the accumulated cultural stuff. It's in the core stuff. It's in the nature of the God revealed through Joseph Smith. That God is my God. That Christ is my Christ. There are many Christians who would say to me, you're not a Christian. You don't believe in the Christ uh, of the creeds. And I would say, you're right about that. If that Christ is impassable, if he's not interested in being approached by me and and being open to being wounded when I'm wounded and so forth, then then that's right. I I can't relate to that God or that Christ. I don't relate to the God or, or the Christ of the Christian creeds, the theological uh, God. I relate to the God who hears an anxious teenager who's very worried about his sinfulness in a grove in Western New York and who comes to his aid and ministers to him there and introduces his son. I love the God whose very first words of the last dispensation are Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee, right? That is what the restored gospel means to me. And that's why I stay. I mean, there are lots of, if if you're going to jump ship every time you don't love something someone does or, or some accumulated tradition or 
you know, you don't get a rock and roll uh, version of sacrament meeting or whatever, then, then you're going to jump ship. But if you're in because of the nature of God that's available in the restored gospel, then this is a great place to stay. Another way to say it for me comes from the bread of life discourse in the gospel of John. You know, the, you know, the story, right? Jesus has miraculously fed thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, next day he's across the lake and they come flocking to him, right? Eager to get more of that. And this day he chooses not to feed them, but to give them an absurd discourse. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. He, he intentionally is offensive and provocative and unintelligible. And, and right by the end of the day, there's hardly anybody left. Hmm. All the free food is, is gone. <laughs> and, and all we're hearing is these hard doctrines. And uh, then he puts a tough question to Peter and the others. What about you guys? Are you going away? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why I am a Latter-day Saint. There's hard doctrine to be sure. Hard doctrine. I think it's intentionally that way. I think DNC 132, which is my favorite and also least favorite of all Joseph's revelations, is one big jumble of hard doctrine and the greatest good news I've ever heard. I think the God of Abraham does that on purpose sometimes, just like the God of the Bread of Life discourse did. What about you guys? You're going to go away? And I think he wants to know whether we're in for good or whether we're just there for the free food. And I'm in for good. I'm in for good. I'm all in. And uh, I know what the cost is. I've counted the cost and I know what that means and I'm all in and I'm staying on that ship all the way to port. And I invite everybody else to be on that with me. Thank you so much, Stephen. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. I appreciate the great work you're doing. Lord bless you in it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Christ underscore SR underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ SR podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.